0: Listen as Drs. Dan Hart from Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry in London and Steve Pipe from the University of Michigan discuss gene therapy in hemophilia, ongoing and future research and what to expect. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy in hemophilia. Visit www.genetherapy.isth.org for more information.
1: Steve, thanks so much for, for joining this ISTH Gene Therapy podcast. Uh, what to watch, ongoing and future research. Um, I mean, clearly there's a, a huge amount for us to squash into not very much time. So um, might you just summarise, I suppose, on the haemophilia a front, first of all, uh, in terms of the ongoing research, uh, just some of the kind of key issues that we need to watch in the coming year and some of the issues that have maybe come to our attention um, that we also need to be aware of? Yeah,
2: it's my pleasure to be here, uh, Dan. Uh, yeah, I think people are pretty excited about particularly some phase three results that we know we've seen some primary readouts. So the BMN 270 biomarin, we have the publication of the phase one two long term data. So we sort of know what to expect over a multi year framework. Uh, we've now uh, seen beyond uh, year one for uh, phase three into year two, and some understanding now of the parallels and similarities with the phase one, two data. And I think uh, people have seen the transformative aspect of this therapy Um, with regards to being able to come off prophylaxis successfully, uh, being able to control bleeds. And it's really a small fraction of patients who uh, maybe have not had the kind of outcome we would expect from this kind of transformative intervention. So I think people are fully expecting to see uh, EU and FDA submissions sooner than later uh, related to that uh, platform of therapy. The other one, of course, uh, for hemophilia B uh, is the AMT061, the HOPE-B trial uh, with uh, Unicure and now CSL. Uh, we've seen the one-year phase three data, and we have long-term data on the prior version of that uh, vector AMTO 60 which used the native factor nine, uh, but we can at least extrapolate the stability uh, and the durability of the expression from that vector. And uh, the The one-year data for the phase three seems to be uh, holding true to those observations with the prior vector. And uh, again, these were uh, levels that were just shy at a mean uh, of patients achieving factor nine expression that were uh, just below the non hemophilia range. And so uh, I think considering the excellent bleed control and uh, the dramatic reduction in factor nine utilization, uh, fully expect to see regulatory submission for that platform of therapy as well. But coming behind those are a number of additional uh, platforms uh, that are either wrapping up phase one, phase two, or already have uh, been enrolling for some time in phase three. We just haven't seen the additional phase 3 data yet from those other programs, Uh, but we have expectations for the uh, SPARC 8011 trial where uh, the early data from phase 1 2 is suggesting um, uh, perhaps stable expression over multiple years, though uh, maybe at a lower overall factor 8 expression. Um, and then we have the flip side, which I think is interesting, is the the Sangamo Pfizer SB525 program, which was just recently placed on clinical hold because some factor 8 levels uh, were well above 150%. And so there's going to be a, a protocol revision here uh, to maybe look at uh, what was uh, driving some of those high levels and some risk mitigation. Uh, we're still expecting to see results from the UCL St. Jude trial, the uh, so-called GO-8 trial. And then uh, for hemophilia B, we still have a couple of other trials. The pfizer Benigene Phase 3 study, again, should be uh, close to fully uh, recruited and looks like we're going to have data sometime uh, next year on that trial. And then uh, Freeline, who is still undergoing some dose refinement in their Phase 2 uh, before uh, making decisions on the final dose selection for Phase 3. So uh, 2022 looks to be uh, wrapping up to be really a monumental year for uh, gene therapy for hemophilia with the possibility of some real transitions to commercialization and still some expectations of some additional therapies that are going to follow in the next one to two years afterwards.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that 2022 and the potential for commercialization and and I suppose first service delivery of, of gene therapy rather than clinical trial, I suppose possibly really challenges us as clinicians to understand the data not just for the first to market programs but also those coming behind to try and help ourselves and colleagues and and indeed most importantly patients to make their decision as to whether gene therapy is right for them at that time.
2: Yeah I I think it's important not to maybe characterize all these gene therapy programs as just sort of cookie cutter, um, there's clear differentiating aspects of the different programs. Um, the way I, I kind of divided it up myself is, you know, what are the differentiating features related to the vector? Well, we've got alternative uh, vector serotypes. Uh, this can influence eligibility related to a pre-existing neutralizing antibodies. Uh, in some cases, there's a differentiation related to bioengineered capsids, which may have a better tropism or targeting to the liver and allow for maybe reduced doses of vector that could have implications for the um, immunogenicity of the vector. We've got manufacturing differences, uh, mammalian cell lines versus uh, insect cells, not to say one is necessarily better over the other, but um, it's certainly easier to scale up from the insect cells, but the mammalian versus insect cell production may also influence immune responses. Then we've got. We can talk in a few minutes, probably about some modifications of the transgenes, uh, which have some implications for outcomes for patients. And uh, we see quite a range of dosing. I have seen up to a hundred fold, so two orders of magnitude differences in dosing between these trials. And these could have real implications for both uh, uh, safety implications as well as uh, the efficacy outcomes for these trials. Um, so a lot, lot, a lot of. Uh, Aspects of differentiation here between the different therapies.
1: And just, I suppose, picking up on that dose difference and, and, and orders of magnitude difference between doses that, that patients are getting, and then the subsequent risk of immunogenicity, requirement of immunosuppression, and, and clearly longer-term in terms of integration. I, I suppose just reflecting on the on the recent New England Journal publication of the SPARC uh, 8011 data, that, that coming in at a, at, a, at a lower level at 52 weeks of follow-up, with a suggestion of maybe stability thereafter, which possibly contrasts to the higher expectation that we've all now had from the early data from Barmerin with mean medians of, of, you know, certainly well into the normal range, but then with drift over subsequent years. Um, that trade off between integration risk and, and expression, whether you think actually a lower expression, uh, early and more durable response is mechanistically somehow advantageous to the, the hepatocytes?
2: Well, I think this is great unknowns at this point. Uh, I think people will have a choice, ultimately. There's a lot to be said for the idea that you could achieve normalization of your factor eight uh, or your factor nine level, but I've seen the transformative capability of gene therapy at much lower levels of expression, Uh, but there it really depends on are you going to have the durability. So I think some patients, when they had the data laid out before them, if they see that they might be able to achieve a 15 to 20% factor level, but they're going to have sustained expression over multiple years, I think they'd be able to sacrifice and say, well, yeah, I'd be willing to give a, you know, a dose of factor for a surgical uh, intervention, or if I had a significant trauma for the knowledge of having that sort of safety net of of stable expression afterwards. But there's other patients are going to look at the data uh, and see multiple years potentially with levels that are well into the non-hemophilia range with another option. And that may be the right choice for them. So I think we're going to be, hopefully back to a sort of a shared decision model if there's multiple therapeutics that become commercialized coming out of this and think about the the variability
1: between patients and and as you suggest and i've certainly seen that too that patients can actually be very satisfied with lower expression being off prophylaxis uh, but also having maybe had higher expression into normal range for a period of time and then coming down into the mild hemophilia range but still actually Anecdotally, still very satisfied with the outcome. I suppose it's managing expectation for. For patients and I suppose clinicians too. Is there an issue around production? I was just thinking about the difference between say Biomer phase 1, 2 and their third phase where they seem to have lower mean expression or median expression in their phase 3 in contrast to the Pfizer platform which seems to actually increase the mean median of, of their phase 3. Is there a, a kind of an issue around standardization of production for these products
2: do you think that we need to be aware of? Well, I I think certainly, and there have been some um, opinion pieces that have been published uh, just in the last few weeks, actually, that have highlighted this issue. Uh, We definitely need some industry standardization around vector production, uh, the assays to evaluate what the vector is. There's a lot of questions around uh, reporting out this idea of empty and full capsids, um, you know, when, you, when you're assembling these vectors, you know, do they actually contain intact transgenes and how does that impact on the uh, efficacy and maybe even safety issues? And I, I think we don't have standardization across the industry. Uh, we're still looking for standardization even as it relates to reporting out neutralizing uh, antibody assays. And if we're going to understand variability and uh, differentiation between these programs, programs, somehow it has to be linked back to the actual quality of the product or the characteristics of the product that's being delivered to the patient. So uh, I think we're still in the early days of this as a thinking about this in an industry perspective, we're still very much in the clinical trial phase of this. So perhaps when we shift to the commercial, there will be more disclosure and more standardization of the characterization of the produce vectors and what's actually being delivered to the patients. And so I think that's a call to action for the whole industry.
1: When you mentioned differentiating features, I suppose that the Unicure Hope B trial is the only one that I'm aware of that is actively kind of got a protocol that doses through pre-existing neutralizing antibodies, whereas others, uh, that's an exclusion criteria. Are you optimistic that actually the, the apparent success of the Unicure dosing and expression thereafter, even in those with neutralizing antibodies bodes well for there's not being a, a more generalizable exclusion criteria for, for AAV-based gene therapy?
2: Well, I think all we can say right now is that it might be a feature of AAV5, which was the vector serotype that was chosen here. Um, it's still being explored further uh, in BMN270, uh, there is a protocol for patients, uh, at least with lower levels of um, positive neutralizing antibodies to be included in a protocol and evaluating safety and efficacy in that format. I would be hesitant to uh, try to extrapolate that to all uh, vector serotypes. I suspect that that will not be the case.
1: And staying on the neutralizing antibody theme, let's think about anti-factor 8 antibodies and, and inhibitors. Um, how optimistic are you about trials coming through that may actually, you know, deliver gene therapies as, as an ITI-based therapy for those with chronic inhibitors? Mm. Well...
2: There's good rationale for this from preclinical data, uh, some animal models, and also this idea that perhaps endogenous expression of factor eight, particularly when it's coming from your own liver, it's going to be presented to the immune system in a different way than an exogenous infusion. Um, and the idea that you could actually use this as a form of immune tolerization, I think, is really attractive to people. I think the first step is we need to be reassured that no one is developing inhibitors as a consequence of gene therapy. I mean, this is a pretty experienced population, right? Uh, we, we've excluded all patients. We even have a remote history of uh, inhibitors. Uh, they're all well experienced with factor products. So we're really not expecting gene therapy to trigger inhibitors. But the next step then is to first include those patients who have a remote history uh, of an inhibitor, who have been tolerized with factor previously, and make sure that gene therapy doesn't cause them to lose their tolerance or trigger resurgence of their uh, inhibitor, that's going to be explored in a trial from a SPARC, uh, the 8016 trial, where it's going to enroll patients with remote histories of inhibitors. And then I think if we're reassured at that level, I think it's very reasonable to think about a protocol that would take a refractory inhibitor patient and see uh, if this could induce tolerance through this mechanism.
1: And I, I think The I, so UCL St. Jude's have a, a protocol as well in parallel to that Pfizer platform so it's good that a number of them are, are, are really thinking about that. We're kind of Cinderella group, that are kind of left with that chronic inhibitor um, problem for, for, for their life despite previous efforts at ITI maybe. Th- thinking in the last few minutes, Steve, just about things to watch, um, are there any particular new mechanism of action of gene therapy that you've got your eye on particularly?
2: Well, I think we're going to see some data coming out on the utility of second generation transgenes. Of course, uh- Factor 9 Padawa is the perfect example of a second generation transgene. It has now usurped uh, all of uh, the trials that would have been ongoing with uh, standard Factor 9, wild type Factor 9. But we do have some secondary transgenes for Factor 8. Sadly, we don't have a Padawa-like variant uh, for Factor 8 that gives us multiple fold boost in uh, Factor 8 activity. But we do have some innovations that can improve the secretion efficiency of Factor 8. The V3 variant of factor uh, Eight from Freeline is being explored in their trial. And this has got a cluster of N-link glycosylations in the uh, B-domain linker uh, that's believed to enhance expression. And uh, we're going to see a new trial sometime in 2022 from a company called ASC Therapeutics. They're using a transgene called the ET3. This came out of uh, the researchers at Emory. This is using human porcine. Uh, hybrid sequences that significantly boost the expression efficiency of factor VIII, maybe up to tenfold, and offers uh, some promise that it might reduce uh, what are so-called endoplasmic reticulum stress responses. Uh, Whether that has played a part in any of the factor VIII trials to date is under, you know, ongoing investigation. But, you know, from my own background, I like this idea of a factor eight that would be more efficiently expressed, less ER uh, stress. And this may allow for better uh, expression as well as maybe allow for reduced doses of of the vector. Some of the other things I think we're seeing are continued innovations in bioengineered transgenes. Um, Again, with the aim here to improve better transduction and uh, reduce immunogenicity. Also, maybe some of these might uh, allow for or inclusion of patients who have uh, prior neutralizing antibody, so because of less uh, cross-reactivity. Uh, and then I think the two things that I'm really looking forward to, again, early days, you know, we haven't been able to take this platform of therapy, AAV-mediated liver-directed therapy, down to the pediatric level. This is because of the fact that the majority of the transgenes are going to stay uh, episomal uh, outside of uh, the genome. And with a rapidly growing liver, as you would see in a young child, those transgenes will not be uh, transferred to the daughter cells. So we'll have this dilution effect over time. So what we need likely here to really alter the phenotypic expression of hemophilia lifelong is we need to deliver a definitive gene editing uh, innovation to a pediatric patient. So CRISPR-Cas9, I think, is, is a great uh, opportunity here. Uh, This takes some uh, finagling, of course, uh, because the components here are quite large. And so it probably would involve at least in a first wave of multiple vectors to deliver the components to uh, transduce and then also do the gene editing in vivo. We could also envision some protocols, which are in development, to do ex vivo uh, uh, gene editing and then deliver those cells back to the patient. And then I think the other thing that I'm excited about is we've really been challenged by the immunogenicity aspects of AV-mediated liver-directed gene therapy. And is there a way to avoid all of the challenges that are wrapped up in the immune responses to the AV vector, neutralizing antibodies, uh, transaminitis afterwards, uh, all the consequences of having to give immunosuppression and uh, some of the side effects related to that immunosuppression. So the idea of non-viral vectors, uh, I think, is really attractive to people. I I see some promise with the lipid nanoparticle uh, delivery methods. Uh, This is a way of uh, you can deliver perhaps even viral vectors with lipid nanoparticles, um, maybe to protect them from immune responses. But there's also strategies to use these to deliver actual DNA components, or maybe even the gene editing components without having to use viral vectors. And this, I think, would really offer some promise to avoid some of the immunological challenges we've had with this platform of therapy. Steve, that's a, a wonderful, a hugely thorough insight to w-
1: what to watch out for currently with with those that are reaching the end of phase three and, and pushing towards regulatory approval, and, and then realising that just b- behind the, this this wealth of, of gene therapy technology and innovation that uh, I mean it's, it's for haemophilia, but also I think we're also a, a trailblazing kind of specialty for uh, other specialties along with I recognise there's some of the serious neurodegenerative disorders and mucopolysaccharidosis and, and the like that, and I think do need to still look laterally, don't we, at others, learning from others as well as ourselves.
2: Um, Yeah, and I think we've been given some guardrails here from some of the other uh, disease entities. Um, I think there's real concerns about off-target a transduction of AV and some potential toxicities for tissues. We're not intending uh, to be transduced with, with these uh, therapies. And I think we've been given some guardrails around doses. Um, there have been some real uh, tragedies, I think you could say, from some trials in these life-threatening disorders, uh, but some of the pathologies have clearly been linked to the doses. So I think the advantage we have in hemophilia is we don't need a, a huge expression to transform the phenotype for patients. And I think if we're careful and we pay attention to the guardrails and the warnings we're seeing from some of these other programs, we can make sure that we can find, I would call the sweet spot for AAV-mediated liver-directed therapy for hemophilia and hopefully have a truly transformative uh, platform for patients that will offer both safety and efficacy.
1: Steve, great place to stop. Thanks so much for your time, your wisdom, and your insights for gene therapy today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Dan.
0: Earn your CME credit by clicking the link for credit. Check back for more podcasts on gene therapy and hemophilia. Additional education is available on www.genetherapy.isth.org, an educational resource designed by leading experts for the global hemophilia community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in gene therapy and hemophilia.